Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. United States foreign policy is of great interest to all Americans because of the important thread in the American narrative that says we should use our blessings of freedom and wealth to benefit the world. Foreign policy matters. The burning question for us on this podcast is, how did religion influence American foreign policy and war, if at all? To help us answer this question, we will talk with Andrew Preston, professor of American history at the University of Cambridge, and author of Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, Religion in American War and Diplomacy. Mr. Preston specializes in the history of American foreign relations, specifically the intersection between national and international, including the influence that domestic politics and culture, particularly religion, have had on conduct of U.S. foreign policy. Also, as with each episode in our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, We hope listeners come away with a better comprehension of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and thus more fully comprehend the necessity of this idea of religious freedom to America in fulfilling her purposes in the world. Thank you, Andrew, for being with us today. Your book is absolutely fantastic. I read it years ago, and it revealed to me an entire part of American history that I had not really heard of, uh, and that is almost endless in its influence, and that is religion's role in U.S. foreign policy. So before I start with any specific questions, uh, can you tell us just generally how religion has influenced uh, U.S. war and diplomacy? Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I should say that um, first off. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, um, and thanks for the questions and the, and the discussion uh, around my book. Um, when I wrote this book almost 10 years ago, you said you read it a while ago, um, not many people were working on religion and US foreign policy, and now it's a whole subfield um, in political science and in history. So it's really, it's been, it's been really exciting. The religious influence in American foreign policy has been sometimes tricky to demonstrate um, because you don't always find policymakers saying, um, I want to do A, B, or C, or X, Y, Z, because of my religious beliefs, um, especially when you're talking about high-level diplomacy. Um, You don't always find that kind of record in NSC uh, meeting minutes or, you know, uh, things like that. Um, So sometimes you have to read between the lines. Sometimes it's tricky. But once historians and political scientists began to know what to look for, um, uh, the job became easier. And it also became much more interesting because, as you said, it all of a sudden opened up this whole vista on how we should see American foreign policy. And then to get to get back to your question, um, what's the general influence? Um, religion has over time, over a long period of time, acted as a kind of conscience for 
American foreign policy and for American foreign policymakers, even for policymakers who themselves weren't religious because of American domestic politics, because of the, um, the very vibrant role that religion plays in American domestic politics. And then the fact that domestic politics and political actors then apply pressure to policymakers um, and, and force them to confront moral questions in foreign policy. Religion has, in, in that way, had a huge influence on the conduct of American foreign policy, and not just in the last 10 or 20 years, but the last 200 years. Okay, so it took some sleuthing on your part to, f- to get at those tools that allowed you to see the influence. So it was a little bit of a, a job to do, I guess. Absolutely. And that's what that's what's fun about it. That that's the that's the most fun you can have as an historian is, sure. is piecing things together and reading between the lines and getting to know the context and getting to know the people. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you for doing that because it's just super revealing. So well, thank you. the second sort of introductory question would be uh, tell us about the title. The title grabbed me. Uh, it just grabbed me in all ways. T- tell us about that title, where it came from, why you used it. The title uh, comes from um, the book of Ephesians, and it's where Paul is telling new Christians what they need to do. They need to um, what they need to wear effectively. He's using this metaphorically, um, and they need to. Um, wield the sword of the spirit and also brandish the shield of faith along with another uh, number of other accoutrements. Um, And he doesn't use those two phrases side by side in Ephesians um, in this, in this passage. Um, But I've put them together uh, because to me, they capture exactly what the religious influence on American foreign policy was and still is all about. So on one hand, you have the sword of the spirit, which is the kind of, which is familiar to a lot of people. That's the kind of um, interventionist, messianic, we're going to reform the world um, type of ideology that has been present in American foreign policy from Manifest Destiny all the way up to the present. And in fact, when I began my book, I began my book during the, the years of the George W. Bush administration and at the height of the Iraq war. And a lot of people, um, a, a friend of mine actually put it like this. A lot of people assumed that I was sort of writing a history of the Bush administration's foreign policy. And when I told a friend that actually I was going back much further in time, uh, 200 years, I ended up going back 400 years. But um, he said, oh, you're writing a history of Bush backwards, basically. The use of religion to justify war and empire and all that kind of thing. And that's definitely a part of the story. And that's the sword of the spirit. But as I did more research, the shield of faith was also extremely important. And historians hadn't paid nearly enough attention to internationalism and pacifism and um, uh, solving conflict and uh, promoting interfaith dialogue, promote, using religion as a, as a tool for peace. And so I've called that the shield of faith. And where the religious influence is most powerful is a blend of the kind of reformist interventionist impulse and the more pacifistic kind of internationalist impulse and where the two have combined um, in order to produce this very, very compelling um, moral vision for American foreign policy. And that, that's why the book is called Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith. If I could say one more thing about that, it, I can't claim any credit. I can't claim credit for thinking of that, even though I came across it, John Foster Dulles used, the, used those, um, those verses uh, Woodrow Wilson did. Lots of my historical actors in the book talked about the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. But my wife and I were, I live in England, I'm based in England. We were 
going for a walk in the country with our dog. And one of the things we love to do is to stop into these little village parish churches that are, you know, about a thousand years old and full of history. And we went into one in Northamptonshire, which is a neighboring county to, to where I'm from, Cambridgeshire. And there was a large memorial plaque on the wall of the church, this beautiful little church in the middle of nowhere. And it was to um, the dead of the two world wars, which is very common in English village churches. And this plaque had the, the passages, had the verses rather. Wow. And my wife said, because I was, we were just talking about my book and I was just talking about what I would later identify as the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. And she said, there it is. There's your title right there. Cause it just perfectly captures the book. I agree. It perfectly ca- captures it. So let's dive in, uh, Andrew. Thanks for that helpful foundation you laid there for us. We're just going to ch- cover four of your 30 chapters. We're going to talk about FDR and his faith, the religion and religious freedom used by the Johnson and Kennedy administrations, the Vietnam War and religion's influence on that, its prosecution, and then we're going to touch lightly on the epilogue, 9-11, and a little bit after that. So, Andrew, uh, can you paint for us a religious portrait of Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Uh, He was, so if I was painting just a quick portrait, he was by instinct um, non-theological, as in non-doctrinal, to him, religion was a living thing. It was about spirituality, but it was also about ethics. But it wasn't something that you would think about, think a lot about. Um, he wasn't a theologian. Um, but his religion was very deep. It was very profound. Um, his wife, Eleanor, who wasn't a religious person, as far as we know, said that that was the most, um, it was the, 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 the thing that he felt deepest and was most mysterious in him was his faith. He was an Episcopalian. Um, and he was also by instinct, as well as I would say, not by doctrine, because I just said he wasn't doctrinal, but um, to him, religion was inherently interfaith. He was an Episcopalian, as I just said, he was a Protestant, but to him, religion was um, a force for community, a force for coming together, as well as a source of ethics. And he thought that um, religious commonalities inherently trumped religious differences. And that should be then the basis, not the only basis, but a basis for politics and foreign policy. Okay. And I should say, we're starting with FDR, but there's a whole, I don't know the chapter number of that chapter, but there, we're, we're skipping all this other religion, religious influence on American foreign policy pre-mid-20th century. And I, uh, It's a big book. It's a big book. <laughs> we had to choose. <laughs> uh, so anyways, people should read it and... and from the beginning. Okay, Thank so that, that's, the, that's the portrait. Um, that's helpful. I just visited Hyde Park last summer and uh, you know, was moved by his religion, uh, sort of in the same spirit of what you relate there. Um, I'm going to quote something from your book regarding FDR. Building on Lincoln's ecumenical civil religion, Roosevelt was the first president to prioritize faith itself as opposed to Protestantism or even Christianity as the essence of American democracy, close quote. Can you tell us, Andrew, uh, about how FDR used his religious beliefs and his faith uh, in the prosecution of foreign policy, its significance and ramifications? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge question. I should, I should um, uh, sort of preface my answer by 
talking about that quote that you just read and say that um, I want to sort of pay due respect here to previous presidents who also made gestures to what we now call or what came to be called in this in FDR's period in the 1930s and 40s, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, so George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson spoke in very vague terms and not very often in ways that we would later call the Judeo-Christian tradition. So um, looking at how Christianity owes its roots to Judaism and how Jews and Christians should cooperate um, in American politics, in American society, and in American culture. Right. But it was FDR who really elevated that notion to something that we might, to, to something that was included in um, the American civil religion, and even I would say in the American body politic and the political fabric of the nation. This idea that Will Herberg in 1955 uh, called the idea of a nation as Protestant Catholic Jew. And from there, we can talk about this perhaps later in the podcast if you want, although other historians have, have talked about this a great deal. From, from that notion of this kind of tri-faith America, what the historian Kevin Schultz calls tri-faith America, you then have, it opens up spaces for further and further religious pluralism. For FDR in the 1930s, it was a way of distinguishing what was good about America and what was bad about what was going on elsewhere in the world, especially in Nazi Germany, but also in the Soviet Union as well as well, to a lesser extent in Japan, but really it was about Nazi Germany. And for FDR, um, the religion was important for the reasons I already said, because it was a source of personal comfort, a source of spirituality, a source of ethics. Um, but for him, it was a source of democracy. And the reason it was a source of democracy is because uh, without freedom of conscience, you couldn't have uh, uh, democracy. And without democracy, you couldn't have peace peace either at home or in the context of the late 1930s, early 1940s, you couldn't have peace abroad. And one of the reasons why the freedom of religion was so politically important and geopolitically important to FDR is because um, if everything rested on freedom of conscience, you couldn't, you couldn't have freedom of conscience without a freedom of religion. And he talked about this endlessly in the late 1930s and early 1940s. It's there in the four freedoms, in the second of the four freedoms, in freedom of worship. Uh, and it's there in some of his most important um, speeches leading up to World War II. Remember, this is a time when most Americans did not want to get involved in Europe. And his biggest task was convincing not the people we now call isolationists, your Charles Lindberghs and your Gerald Nyes and people like that. Um, his biggest task was because the isolationists, those sort of hardcore isolationists weren't the majority. The biggest task was convincing probably a plurality of Americans who were very internationally minded, including Christian pacifists, including a lot of um, Protestant and Catholic and Jewish leaders, very internationally minded, but did not want to get involved uh, in Europe. Um, and so one way of, of, of winning this argument um, was by appealing to what was starting to be called the Judeo-Christian tradition um, in a way that meant uh, this is what's good about America, but even if Nazi Germany isn't going to attack us, this is why we have to worry about the Germans because what they're doing is they're snuffing out the freedom of religion. And if we go back to this idea of what we might call FDR's faith-based democratic peace theory, democracies don't go to war with, with, with one another. You can't have peace without democracy. You can't have democracy without freedom of conscience. You can't have freedom of conscience without freedom of religion. That's why Americans should pay attention to what was going on in Germany. That's why they should worry about what the Germans were doing to religion. And 
if you're listening to this podcast or watching this video and you're interested in this, just do a quick Google 1939 State of the Union address. And FDR's 1939 State of the Union just begins by laying that all out. Here's why we should care about freedom of religion, because it's not just about what's happening to Jews and some German Christians. It's really about the fate of the world. In the chapter that you call, interestingly, the revolutionary church in a revolutionary age, um, and in that chapter you write, I'm quoting here, perhaps without realizing it, Kennedy and Johnson reflected a shift that was taking place in religion's influence on politics and especially on foreign policy. In a modernizing society that was both increasingly secular and pluralistic, religion's role could never again be assumed. The presidents could look to faith, but they could not rely on it, close quote. Why did you use the term revolutionary church in the chapter's title? And can you take us through a few examples of how the Kennedy and Johnson administration saw religion and religious freedom as part of their foreign policy toolkit or not? Thanks so much on that. Just one more thought about FDR. One of the reasons I enjoyed, I did not expect to do anything on FDR when I began this book, because if you read much of the biographical literature on him, including by people who knew FDR better than I ever will, people like Arthur Schlesinger, they either ignore his religious values and his religious faith, um, or they say that it was a kind of, you know, it was kind of superficial that he would go to church on Sundays sometimes. Um, and that, that I kind of took that at face value, took that assessment. And the more research I did, the more interesting FDR became and FDR's religion became because it, religion was such a central part of his life. It was a very, very important part of his life, and it was a very important part of his, his politics. And then he made it a very important part of his foreign policy. One of the trickiest chapters, or the, the two of the trickiest chapters that, that I wrote that we're going to discuss, I think, in the 1960s deal with those, that deal with the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Um, and yeah. partly because of Kennedy's Catholicism, which a lot of people have written about, um, uh, but I'm not sure anyone is really, politically, there's a lot of really good stuff on on the politics of Kennedy's Catholicism. Um, but I'm not sure we've got to the bottom, just like I'm not sure we had got to the bottom of FDR's uh, uh, Anglicanism. I'm not sure we've got to the bottom of JFK's Catholicism as a personal faith. Although Fred Logeball's biography on JFK that came out recently starts to get us there. He doesn't deal with the presidency in this volume, but it starts to get us there. And LBJ was this, like a lot of other presidents, like Ronald Reagan was, um, like some other presidents, had, it sort of was wonderfully but frustratingly eclectic and, um, and diverse in his religious views, not just in religions he uh, respected or read, or, but he would dabble in all sorts of religions. And I don't mean in a superficial way, but in a, in a, in a fairly, I would say in a fairly profound way. And you ask why the revolutionary church, one of the really interesting things in writing these chapters in the 1960s was trying to get to grips with JFK and LBJ and some other people too. I've got some stuff uh, that I found really interesting on secretary of defense, Robert McNamara and his faith in the Vietnam war. Um, but it was also trying to get to grips with their religion in this time of incredible turbulence, socially and culturally, including in religion. Um, and so the revolutionary church is about Vatican II. It's about the death of God movement. It's about um, uh, uh, liberal Protest mainline Protestantism and a lot of the uh, 
activism that mainline Protestants took part in, in civil rights and second wave feminism um, and all sorts of things. And then of course, it's also, I have a later chapter about, I don't want to call it the backlash because I think that does an injustice to conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists and conservative Catholics. But then you have this kind of counter, what I call the counter-reformation of the 1960s coming in as well. Okay. You write uh, in this chapter this, um, neither Kennedy nor Johnson nor most of their advisors understood the new American religious landscape or grasped the importance of religious pluralism in a globalizing world, close quote. Why did you say that, and what were the effects of this? Yeah, so this is one of the, the trickiest things about these, uh, about these chapters. So Kennedy and Johnson, especially Kennedy, came in as a modernizing, pre- not just a modern president, but a modernizing president. And he surrounded himself with modernization theorists, people who called themselves modernization theorists. And inherently tied up in modernization theory is this assumption of secularization. That is, it, you know, it goes back to Freud and um, it goes back to Weber. It goes back to all sorts of thinkers from the 19th and early 20th centuries that as societies become more modern, they will become more secular. It's just, it's, it's an inescapable uh, process. And people like Walt Rostow and other modernization theorists in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations weren't that concerned with religion. But as far as I can tell, they did have this, this kind of assumption that as the world was becoming more modern, it would become more secular. And therefore, they didn't have to deal with religion. Um, by the same token, Kennedy's Catholicism, which of course was a white hot subject in 1960 for liberals as well as conservatives. I mean, for a lot of people, a lot of a lot of people who supported the civil rights movement said they weren't going to vote for Kennedy because he was a Catholic. I mean, it's it it, it just seems so foreign to us today when the Supreme Court has a Catholic majority um, and Catholics are just part of the mainstream. It's easy to forget just how visceral anti-Catholicism was as late as the early 1960s. Even more so, I would say, than Mormonism is for political candidates um, uh, today in politics, where people like Mitt Romney have to deal with that issue of Mormonism and where some people just won't vote for him no matter what, because he's a Mormon. The point here is that after Kennedy gets elected in 1960, because Catholicism is such a a third rail, um, he doesn't want to deal with religion. He talks in very vague platitudes about religion, but he's not going to go down the route that... FDR and Truman and Eisenhower did in using religion as a political tool, because if he does that, he tries to use it as a political tool. The temp, the, the, the risk that this is going to blow up in his face is really, really enormous. So he just tries to contain it and move it aside. And that, as I was saying, it works quite nicely with his administration because most of them, even the religious ones like Robert McNamara and Dean Rusk, but they're happy to deal with foreign problems in this containerized way where religions is, is just not a part. And the consequences for foreign policy for that, I argue in the book were actually quite profound because it made them miss a lot of the ferment, the growing ferment um, in, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, what was happening in world religions, um, what was happening in the 1960s with Islam uh, and into the 1970s, what was happening in Southeast Asia. Um, there's, there's this quote that I in the in the book I don't have it in front of me so I, I hope I I hope I I don't mangle it but I, I have it where, I have it written down 
is, is this the one about the Buddhist crisis? Yeah. Should I read it? Right. Yeah, please do. I was going to ask you about it. Yeah. The 1963 South Vietnam Buddhist uprising caught the Kennedy administration flat-footed. How could this have happened? A perplexed JFK asked his advisors about the Buddhists. Who are these people? Why didn't we know about them before? Close quote. Yeah, it's an amazing, and I think I go on to say something like, it's shocking that Kennedy was shocked uh, uh, that, that by the Buddhist uprising. 1963, the Catholic leader of South Vietnam, because there was a substantial... Um, uh, population of Catholics, because Vietnam had once been a French colony. And Nguyen Diem, the leader of South Vietnam, was a Catholic. His, bro- his brother, his older brother, was the Bishop of Hue. They weren't just Catholics. They were a prominent, very active Catholic family. And they were America's allies in the fight against communism in South Vietnam. And in 1963, uh, the Buddhists, who felt um, repressed under the Diem government, launched a peaceful, a series of peaceful protests. This is, these are the protests that led to that very famous and, and very troubling image of the Buddhist monk, Tikwang Duk, um, burning himself alive in protest. Probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous photo um, image from the Vietnam War. And this is what Kennedy's talking about when he says, who are these people? Because um, he doesn't know the Buddhists of South Vietnam, but of course they're the largest religious group in Vietnam. They're absolutely essential to politics. And the fact that Kennedy, the president of the United States, who is escalating a conflict that would be later, not much later, become the Vietnam War, the fact that he is perplexed by, by these people just is, is, to me, still baffling when I think about that. And the, the Kennedy administration just didn't have a handle. And I argue in the book um, that they didn't have a handle on it. Uh, just as they didn't have a handle on the early signs of, of the Shia revolution in, in Iran and because um, they just didn't want to deal with religion. They just didn't, they thought religion was a dying force, that it, it was politically irrelevant, that you had these kind of wild-eyed mystics, um, either in, ter- in terms of Muslim clerics or Buddhist monks or whoever. And the fact that they were burning themselves to death in protest just showed how irrational they were. And these people aren't the way of the future. And that, of course, was just a, it was not only a fundamental misreading of what was happening because they weren't taking religion seriously. It, it was a fundamental error. It was a basic error in the conduct of American foreign policy. Right. Uh, you talk about uh, a few minutes ago, Robert McNamara, and then you mentioned the Buddhist who burned himself alive. Can you tell us that story about the Quaker uh, who, who uh, left his uh, home one morning and asking his wife, what can I do to help them stop this war? Uh, That's right. This is, this is Norman Morrison. Um, uh, so this is in 1965. Um, and Norman Morrison was uh, very idealistic and very, very much against the war. And he drove to the Pentagon and um, got close enough. He wasn't right under McNamara's window, but got close enough to McNamara's window where McNamara could see him. Um, And he uh, covered himself with gasoline and was still holding his daughter. And then somebody who realized what he was about to do, people who were kind of mystified as to what was going on and they saw what he was about to do, told him to, to, to put the baby down so the baby wouldn't be hurt, which he did. And then he, in protest against the escalating war in Vietnam, burned himself to death. And it, it, that shook, we know that that shook 
McNamara up, even though McNamara was a very, very buttoned up guy um, and didn't talk about his feelings um, and just wanted to repress that image and just not deal with it and just move on. And he was like that with everything in life. He was known as um, an IBM machine on legs, as somebody who was extremely clever, very rational, one of the founders of systems analysis when he was at Harvard Business School, ran the Ford Motor Company, brought it back to profitability in the 1950s, was a master of data. It was always stats, stats, stats with McNamara. So he's a very rational man, but also it turns out quite spiritual. So this is this kind of, you know, we talked before about how do you get to know someone's faith? Well, it's a mysterious thing. It's a very powerful, powerful thing. And McNamara later um, turned against the war. Uh, without saying he turned against the war, but he started testifying in Congress as to how badly the war was going and how it wasn't going to go well. And he was implying that the U.S. should leave. This is in 1967. Um, and privately at the in, in the at the Pentagon in, in the White House, um, he would have these breakdowns into 1966, 67, and early 68, where he would burst into tears. Um, I think a psychologist would probably say it's because he wasn't talking about his problems. He wasn't talking about the war directly. He was trying to bottle it all up. Um, and I argue that this, that this, this moral act of conscience by Norman Morrison, the guy who um, burned himself in protest, contributed to McNamara's spiritual crisis about the Vietnam War. Um, and it awakened in him a lot of the values that he held as a Christian, um, uh, he was a Presbyterian, um, and also his, his sort of, his ethical compass, um, it, it sort of set his ethical compass off. And it made for him the war, this war that was going badly, that was costing the United States so much, um, not just in, in uh, blood and treasure, but also in terms of, of the, the conscience of the nation, the morality of the nation. As Martin right. Luther King said in 1967, it really caused... McNamara to have this breakdown on the war and to leave the administration. Do we know anything about his religiosity besides that he was a Presbyterian? Well, he was an elder. Um, he wasn't just, you know, a, a notional Presbyterian. He was a, he was, he was an active Presbyterian. Um, and he read widely in uh, uh, not just sort of conventional uh, Protestant books in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, but he read widely on ethics and spiritualism and um, morality and um, and and how religion either influenced or in intersected with a lot of um, a lot of those currents of thought that were becoming, of course, extremely popular in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so he was certainly well versed in a lot of these in a lot of these issues. Okay, thank you. Again, with this. With this chapter, we could go on and on and on, but we have to move on. We are talking with Andrew Preston, professor of American history at the University of Cambridge and author of Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, Religion in American War and Diplomacy. Now to Vietnam and the religious beliefs that supported it or agitated against it, Andrew, uh, and so then influenced American political processes and the U.S. prosecution of that war. I want to talk about two sides of the coin here. I want to talk about the religion's and the religious influences that supported it and those that criticized it. I'm going to start with the latter by quoting Martin Luther King in 1967 in his A Time to Break Silence. 
responding to criticism of his anti-Vietnam War stance. Quote, Have they, the critics, forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death or must I not share with them my life? Close close quote. Andrew, what is this representative of in context of American religious reaction to the Vietnam War? I think first and foremost, what historians have recovered over the last 10 or 15 years it is, it's first and foremost about Martin Luther King's own, the importance of his own spirituality and his own theology and his own Christian witness. Um, and I think we, we do him an, an injustice if we forget that first and foremost, he was a man of faith um, and, a, and, and a preacher. Um, but it also speaks to a wider um crisis of conscience and a crisis of ethics in the United States. Um, Vietnam was a difficult war to explain, right? It was, I mean, the Johnson administration had difficulty explaining it even just to the general public. The Johnson administration had difficulty explaining it, why America was fighting, had difficulty explaining it to the, to the Congress, to the national media. So it was, a, it was a very, very tricky war to justify. That's not to say that Johnson didn't believe in what he was doing. Um, I think he did. I think he was tormented about it. And he would ask the Secret Service to drive him to churches in the middle of the night so he could sit in silence and pray. So he was tormented about it. And it didn't matter what church. This, again, speaks to Johnson's uh, inherent, his instinctive ecumenism. It's no coincidence that FDR was Johnson's hero on almost everything, but also on religion, which is something we often forget. But King speaking out in 1967, not for the first time, it's a, it's a, it's a, a myth that that's, and he partly contributed to the myth by calling it a time to break silence, calling his address a time to break silence, because it wasn't a sermon, it was a, it was a, it was a speech, but it was at Riverside Church, um, and he, he called it a time to break silence. But he had spoken out against the war in March of 1965, just as it was beginning to take off, and he got so much um, uh, pushback on that from all quarters, including people within the civil rights movement, that he then um, kept quiet for another two years. And when he did speak out against it, it was, it was actually, he was a latecomer in the sense to this angst, this moral angst that a lot of the country, not all of the country, but a lot of the country was having about the war. How do we justify, you know, the the most powerful nation in the history of the world, the richest, but the most powerful military, this industrial giant that can project power halfway across the world and rain down devastation on this incredibly impoverished, non-industrial society that was fighting for national independence, right? I mean, if you put communism to one side, which a lot of historians of the Vietnam War do, or at least separate it from Vietnamese nationalism, at the heart of what the Vietnamese were fighting for was national self-determination, which is you know, going back to Woodrow Wilson, going back to the founders, that's a very American thing. So it was a, it was a, it was a really, um, it was a really tough war to, uh, to support. And it was a very tough war to remain silent about. And King's, King's speech is the most eloquent testimony to that. Can you mention some of the religions that would have sided? You say Martin Luther King was a latecomer. Uh, what, what religious um, traditions were generally a opposed to the war? Is that a fair question? 
It, it's a fair question, but it's a difficult one to answer because it was pretty much across the board. Um, uh, so certainly mainline Protestants, the, the National Council of Churches and a lot of their affiliates, the, main, the mainline denominations, most of the leadership um, of those organizations and churches uh, were opposed to the war, some earlier than others. Um, I should say in defense of King, one of the reasons he was a, a slight latecomer to this is because when he did, when he was one of the first to speak out about it, there was a worry in the civil rights movement that he was going to damage the civil rights movement by getting on the wrong side of Johnson. So it was a political decision to, to, to then be quiet about that. But um, American Jews were, uh, were very critical of the war from a very early point. Um, uh, quite a few Catholics, obviously, there were also quite a few Catholics who were supportive of the war because it was a very complicated thing for Ameri for not just American Catholicism, but for the Catholic Church because of the uh, prevalence of um, uh, Catholicism within Vietnam and the religious issues at play in Vietnam. Um, but uh, a lot of Jesuit priests um, spoke out against the war, most famously the Berrigan brothers. And eventually an organization formed called uh, CalCav clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. And it was led by um, Richard Newhouse, um, a Lutheran, later Catholic, but at the time Lutheran, um, Abraham Heschel, um, and uh, Daniel Berrigan. Um, so Protestant Catholic Jew, tri-faith nation. And they, they were one of the earliest, along with uh, new left student organizations like SDS, they were one of the earliest um, segments of American society to, to, to campaign against the war. Okay. Well, let's flip that coin over, and uh, I'm going to quote something from also a 1967 statement, um, this one from the American Council of Christian Churches, which supported the war. Quote, America must win Vietnam. There is no other acceptable course. To surrender or show weakness before the communist onslaught would be the greatest disaster ever to befall America. The conflict with communism is God versus anti-God, Christ versus anti-Christ, close quote. What does this represent, uh, Andrew? Tell well, us about the... Sorry? Yeah, tell us about the, the religious influence supporting the Vietnam War. Um, so that represents a lot of things, but at heart it represents uh, two things. One is um, just the, the fervency of American anti-communism in the Cold War. Um, and I'll I'll unpack that a little bit. But the other it represents is just what Vietnam came to stand for by the time that statement was issued in what we now call the, or what would later come to be called the culture wars, um, the, which don't begin in the 1990s when the term is coined, but I would argue begin in the 1960s and 1970s. And so when people are forced to choose sides, and if, if the other side is uh, seen as unpatriotic and critical of America in a time of crisis and so on and so forth, then the people who are naturally inclined to support the president or to fight communism are going to double down. And there's this kind of something that, that we see in American society, or indeed in lots of societies, but we have seen in American society um, periodically, but I would say unfortunately increasingly up to, up to the present. And, that, um, and so in the 1960s, what the American um, Council of Christian Churches um, wanted to highlight was the fact that, yes, this is a difficult war to support in some ways, um, but 
when you boil it right down to its, its essence, it's uh, what Reagan would later call a noble cause. This is a, a struggle against communism, godless communism, um, communism that was, if you, if you inverted everything that communism stood for, this is um, what people used to say during the Cold War, if you inverted everything that communism stood for, Americanism was on the other side. So you'd have the dictatorship of the proletariat and you'd have um, uh, liberal democracy. You would have um, uh, atheism and you would have freedom of religion. You would have a command economy and then you would have the free market and so on and so forth. So it was, it was kind of the ultimate other. And it was assumed to be, and there was a lot of evidence for this, that it was inherently aggressive and that communism wanted to spread. Um, and so there are moments where fault lines, it could be in China, it could be in Korea, it could be in Vietnam, Latin America, Berlin or other places in Europe, where, where communism was, see, was being seen to advance. And this gets to the kind of almost eschatological uh, flavor of that statement that you just read that you quoted from my book, that if communism wins in one place, it's going to keep winning and it's going to snuff out everything that America stands for. And eventually it's going to snuff out those freedoms in the United States itself. Now, it seemed far-fetched to a lot of people at the time that Vietnam would be that important, um, but to a lot of other people, it made total sense. And by this time, by the late 60s, there's this inexorable logic to that, right? If we go back to Franklin Roosevelt and what I said about FDR and the, and the Germans, that's the exact same argument that FDR made about the Germans. And then when the Nazis are gone from 1945, but they're defeated, and as the Cold War begins to escalate, Harry Truman and then later Dwight Eisenhower applies it to the Soviet Union. It's the exact same logic. Um, and as I said, given the, what, what was happening in world politics in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, there is, you know, there was, it wasn't like um, people like Carl McIntyre were, were making this up out of whole cloth. Now, what they were doing was following that logic to its to the nth degree, to the absolute end of that logical chain um, in, in making Vietnam so important in this global struggle uh, uh, against communism. Right, and they definitely you know, put it into very stark religious language, God and anti-God. Can I say one more thing about that too? Absolutely. So, sorry, I don't mean to drone on a bit, but um, so really interestingly, um, Billy Graham in the 1960s uh, paid a lot of attention to what was going on in world politics uh, and also in Vietnam. Now, Billy Graham is one of the people who, of course, um, helped launch the Cold War crusade in a very ideological sense in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but by the 1960s, he certainly hadn't uh, lessened his anti-communism. He still didn't like communism at all. But what was going on in Vietnam, this is why Billy Graham perfectly symbolizes the struggles of the 1960s the struggles I was referring to earlier about what a difficult war it was to support with conscience and also to argue in favor of and to justify. Billy Graham stood by his friend, Lyndon Johnson. He stood by his friend, Richard Nixon. But privately, we know that he was anguished about what was going on in Vietnam. And so to me, Billy Graham's dilemmas, his struggles, um, this kind of turmoil that he saw in the world and where Vietnam didn't really fit into any of those neat categories in the 1950s. And seeing him struggle with that, um, to me, is uh, very profound, but also um, uh, very telling of the turbulence of the decade. I agree. I, I've uh, read a biography, a couple biographies of Billy Graham, and I think you're, you're uh, right on there. Um, 
We are out of time just about, but I don't want to end the podcast without giving you a chance to at least bring us up to speed through a decade after 9-11. Give us, in a nutshell, religion's influence on America's response to 9-11 and and everything that sort of of has come after that with regard to um, war in, in the Middle East. Well, as I said earlier, when I began this book, in, I began it in 2003. Uh, that's when I began research on it um, and began telling people I was writing it. And I said that a friend of mine said, oh, you're writing a history of Bush backwards. Um, and there is certainly, there has been over the last 20 years, there has been a strong uh, religious strain of supporting Um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the war on terror, a kind of American exceptionalism um, to remake the world, to spread democracy, and especially to protect religious freedom. But that's not the only part of the story. And even that part of the story is much more complicated than we allow for. So Bush is remembered for Iraq, and I think that's probably right. That's the, the most important thing that he did as president. And that's what historians are going to be spending most of their time trying to puzzle out Um, and work through in the coming decades. Um, But Bush was also the president who did more to fight um, HIV AIDS in Africa than any other president. He made it a real cause of his, including at the height of the Iraq war, he would take time away from war planning and the war on terror to consider HIV AIDS. And I don't think you can really comprehend that without understanding Bush's own personal faith the faith of some of his advisors, like Michael Gerson and others, um, and then how that faith then translated into politics. So I would say about Bush that he's more complicated than I think we realize now. And we won't, sort of like with Eisenhower, where our, our understanding of Eisenhower underwent a real revolution in the 1980s because of scholarship, finding new sources and thinking, having time to reflect about Eisenhower. I think something similar might happen with George W. Bush, certainly with his religion. And then Obama is, is no easier to figure out um, in a lot of senses. And, and, and I don't mean in a lot of senses of the way that people talk about in, in highly political terms, highly politicized terms. Um, Obama's heroes um, were a lot of peace activists and community developers, but they, it was also Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and he cited Reinhold Niebuhr as his favorite philosopher. And he actually very bravely invoked Niebuhr in his uh, speech in Oslo accepting the Nobel Peace Prize and saying, um, look, I'm an, I'm an American president. I, I can't live a pacifistic life. I can't be a pacifistic president. Um, there are times where I might have to, as Niebuhr said, choose the lesser evil, but do so for moral reasons. Um, and to be a Christian realist, to be a realist, but to have Christianity kind of be his moral compass through there. Um, so I found both Bush and Obama very interesting. I, I only deal with them, as you said, very briefly in an epilogue to at the end of a very long book that was published in 2012. But I do conclude by saying that both Bush and Obama, in their very different and very eclectic ways, um, fit perfectly within the tradition of the religious influence on American war and diplomacy. Thank you for bringing us up into the 2000s. Andrew, as we conclude... Uh, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of perhaps important historical transfa- transformations you have charted 
or in terms of simply helping us better understand our present moment? I wish I could help us understand our present moment better. Um, I, if I could, uh, I'd be a very famous man because understanding the present moment is a challenge for us all right now. Um, but the one thing I would take away, I would want people to take away from my book um, is that religion and politics, it does not just mean, it doesn't just push in one direction. It's not shorthand for the Christian right or the religious right or whatever, whatever shorthand people want to come up with, um, that, it's, that it's more complicated. Um, and as Obama said many times, that it's also more productive than a lot of people assume. On the other hand, I would also um, want people who don't need reminding of religion's importance in politics and foreign policy to consider that it's not the only story and that it fits in with a much wider um, uh, puzzle of what American politics is, what American foreign policy is, and what, it, what they mean within the American body politic. Thank you, Andrew. We have been talking with Andrew Preston, professor of American history at the University of Cambridge and author of Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, Religion in American War and Diplomacy. Mr. Preston specializes in the history of American foreign relations, specifically the intersection between national and international including the influence that domestic politics and culture, particularly religion, have had on conduct of U.S. foreign policy. Andrew, thank you for being with us. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. Very much, Chris. Thank you. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19th, 2020 through the end of the year on Podbean under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcast, and Spotify.